Hi everyone, it's John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network, and we like to think of ourselves as caffeine for the curious. This week's story is called, The Cop and the UFO. The next time you find yourself trucking down Interstate 25, headed north from El Paso up to Albuquerque, New Mexico... Other words, God's country for snakes, lizards, cactus, old mines, and alien encounters. I want you to be thinking about what it would be like to be a cop patrolling these roads for speeders, only to end up cornering a UFO in some rocky arroyo. It was 5.45 p.m. on April 24, 1964, and Lonnie Zamora was patrolling the town of Socorro and the main route through it in his white Pontiac patrol car when a black Chevy tore by him on the way out of town, and he started after it. Lonnie was 31 years old, a solid professional, liked his job, and was as honest and hardworking as the day is long. He was pretty sure he knew who the driver of the Chevy was, a 17-year-old kid that always seemed to be getting into trouble. It was looking like today would be no exception. Within a few seconds, his Pontiac was in pursuit, his lights and siren in full mode. Just seconds after he hit the road leading out of town, though, he heard a loud roar in the distance through his open window that lasted for about 10 seconds, accompanied by a long, funnel-shaped, bluish-orange flame rising up into the air. It wasn't coming from the car he was pursuing. It was more from the southwest, where he suspected that a dynamite shack near one of those mines over there must have blown. So he gave up the chase of the Chevy and pointed his car in that direction, and radioed into the sheriff's dispatcher. He was soon using a narrow gravel road which he knew led up toward that dynamite shack, and it was rough, rocky, and hilly, causing the rising smoke and flame he was seeing to appear and disappear, and he soon realized his only option was to drive the car up the rocky strewn path to the top of the mesa in order to get a better look down at the scene. His front wheels were slipping on the way up, it wasn't that high to the mesa top, maybe only 20 feet above the level of the gully, but very rough going, and it took three tries. He was now catching glimpses downward into that small gully. Peering down into the arroyo, and now about 150 yards away, he suddenly spotted a shining object, and he immediately thought it was an overturned car. But as his vision cleared and he stopped his car, he was able to give it a closer look seeing that it was an oval-shaped object without windows or doors, about the same bulk size as a mid-sized car, but standing on legs, not wheels. There was an unusual red insignia on the side of the object, in front of which were standing two small people, dressed in white overalls, he thought, one of which seemed to jump upon seeing him, obviously startled. Whatever was going on, he had caught them by surprise. Zamora radioed the dispatcher, Nep Lopez, again relaying what he was seeing. 
then left his patrol car on the gravel road at the top of the mesa, working his way down on foot while approaching the object, which had the luster of aluminum and was shaped like the letter O. As he approached on foot, he got a closer look at the red insignia, which bore neither letters nor numbers, just a symbol, and he wrote it down in his scratch pad. The two pilots, if that's what they were, were no longer in sight, and he assumed they were inside the vehicle. As he got within a hundred feet, he heard a loud roar again, this one deafening, and he saw a bluish flame shoot out of the underside of the object, so he dived back toward his car, thinking it, whatever it was, was going to explode. He was understandably scared, expecting that the wash from the blast was going to hit him. He looked up from his prone position and saw the object lifting up from the ground to about his level at the top of the mesa, maybe 20 feet higher than the canyon bottom. It hovered for a moment and then took off southeast, clearing the dynamite shack only by about three feet, then flying in a straight line across the desert for 10 or maybe 15 miles, never getting high, staying about 10 to 15 feet off the ground all the time, but moving very fast. He was shaking when State Police Sergeant Sam Chavez, having heard Zamora's calls to the dispatcher, arrived on the scene just minutes after the craft had disappeared into the sky headed towards Six Mile Canyon Mountain. Lonnie explained to Chavez what he had seen, and Chavez called in the dispatch and asked them to contact the military, that being White Sands Proving Grounds. And by the next day, Army Captain Richard T. Holder, uprange commander in the company of FBI agent D. Arthur Burns, Jr. from Albuquerque, showed up to take a look at the site and to tell him that there were no craft of that type operating anywhere in the area. Then Major William Connor from nearby Kirkland Air Force Base and Sergeant David Moody, who was in the area on TDY, investigated for Project Blue Book that following day. And the head of Project Blue Book, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, came as well and asked him a lot of detailed questions. And then after Dr. Hynek, all kinds of reporters started showing up and asking questions or trying to reach him at home. It would be weeks of questioning and reports, and the report had gone national the first day. It wasn't long before Officer Zamora said he had had enough and asked everyone to leave him the hell alone. What was really frustrating, Zamora said later, in the weeks and months to come, was seeing and hearing the endless line of deniers, starting with the Air Force, which insisted that the whole affair was a hoax. The old maxim, he who shouts the loudest has the most guilt of air, probably holds true with regard to the Air Force. They've been accused of being directly involved with the testing of saucer-like craft, the harboring of aliens, and cover-ups of a number of UFO crashes and sightings. Harvard astronomer Donald Menzel and how this guy graduated Harvard is anyone's guess, suggested that Zamora had been the victim of a complex prank engineered by high school students who planned the whole business to get Zamora. Years later, Menzel, and let me repeat, Harvard astronomer, argued that Zamora had misidentified a dust devil. That's Menzel, M-E-N-Z-E-L. It's in the dictionary under idiot. Journalist and prominent UFO skeptic Philip J. Klass, K-L-A-S-S, first suggested that the Zamora sighting was due to misidentified ball lightning, just a notch smarter than Menzel. When this debunking was itself debunked, notably by atmospheric physicist and UFO advocate Dr. James E. McDonald, 
Class then switched gears, trying to find a new way to get his name in print, and suggested the Zamora sighting was part of a scheme Zamora had invented with Socorro's then-mayor, Holm Bursum Jr., to attract tourism, claiming Bursum owned the land where Zamora's encounter occurred. Bursum didn't own the property, as Class claimed, but that made no difference. Class nevertheless claimed that Bursum hoped Zamora's fabricated UFO story would lure tourists to Socorro, and Bursum could then develop the UFO landing site into a tourist attraction. Both Bursum and Zamora consistently denied these accusations as ridiculous, and the landing site was never developed, even after Zamora's sighting gained national publicity. Class had received all the attention he needed, so he was happy. Dozens of responsible people surveyed the landing site, some within an hour or two of the incident, and found marks in the sand where the craft had stood, still smoldering vegetation, and spots where the exhaust flames from beneath the craft had melted or fused the sand into sticky globs. Multiple witnesses out on the highway had seen the craft, including one family that the spacecraft buzzed just a few feet over the top of their car. Hundreds of people as far away as Socorro heard the boom that the craft had made twice, the second having been witnessed by the deputy just before the craft lifted. Our listeners might recall the loud boom heard at the Shag Harbor incident just before that craft hit the water in our story Shag Harbor UFO. That happened just a few years after this incident. The Air Force issued their formal report on June 8, 1964. Jerome Clark suggested that the report was riddled with errors, including the claim that there were no other witnesses, and several had reported their sightings within minutes of Zamora's encounter, and the claim that there were no disturbances in the soil, manifestly false, based on Jordan's photos of the scene taken less than an hour after the encounter. Thank you, Air Force. Noting that they made no conclusion as to the object's origin other than to rule out the extraterrestrial hypotheses, the Air Force was continuing its investigation, and the case, and the case, they said, is still open. However, in a secret report prepared for the CIA, Project Blue Book's director, Major Hector Quantanilla, offered further details regarding the Zamora case. Quote, There is no doubt that Lonnie Zamora saw an object which left quite an impression on him. There is also no question about Zamora's reliability. He's a serious police officer, a pillar of his church, and a man well-versed in recognizing airborne vehicles in his area. He is puzzled by what he saw, and frankly, so are we. This is the best documented case on record, and still we have been unable, in spite of thorough investigation, to find the vehicle or other stimulus that scared Zamora to the point of panic. Now put yourself on Officer Zamora's shoes in 1964, and the story really turns ugly. It wasn't long before he was shouting at the critics and debunkers with all their stupid versions, saying, Listen, since you know what happened, why don't you just start answering all these questions? After all the unwanted stardom and all the accusations that he was just seeing things, or was the victim of a high school prank, all he probably wanted was a quiet corner in a Socorro bar where he could enjoy a cold brew and maybe a game of pool with a buddy. He was a quiet guy and serious about his job and it wasn't long before he had sworn off contact with anyone he didn't know. And now when he walked in the bar, even some of the guys he knew started whispering and pointing. Cat calls and jokes just kept coming. 
He would forever be the tinfoil-wearing butt of humor for every idiot in Socorro County. He tried to ignore it and just do his job, but after two years or so of constant unwanted notoriety and abuse, he finally turned in his badge and went to work at a Socorro gas station. On November 2, 2009, at the age of 76, Officer Lonnie Zamora died of a heart attack. His case still remains as one of the most witnessed UFO events and one that no one could disprove. It is easily counted in the top ten of UFO close encounters of the third kind. The craft speed was estimated based on the time it took to disappear over Six Mile Canyon at 650 miles per hour. The type of propulsion required to lift that craft straight up then shoot away horizontally at those speeds was beyond the dreams of the Air Force at that time. The two small people, who knows where they came from, probably weren't from the local high school. The moral of this story is, if you come up on a strange-looking craft in the middle of the desert, or in your backyard for that matter, and you feel like checking it out, think twice and remember the sad story of Lonnie Zamora and the UFO. Then, just walk away. Don't even bother to snap a picture. Maybe someday humanity will be able to handle it. And then again, maybe not. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Stories for the Road. We're a proud part of 1001 Stories Network where you'll also find 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales podcast. By the way, Alexa users, just say, Alexa, play 1001 Stories for the Road podcast, and you're in business with the newest episode. The same goes now for 1001 Heroes. Just ask, Alexa, play 1001 Heroes podcast. Getting the latest episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Here it is from TuneIn. As you can hear, you don't need the full title for that show. Just ask for 1001 Heroes podcast. I want to extend a big thank you to those of you who are joining us as premium member subscribers. I hope you're enjoying full access to our deep archives at all three shows and that our new app, 1001 Stories Network is making listening easy for you. I've been adding bonus episodes, and I see you've been finding them. I really enjoyed the first Sherlock Holmes story, and I hope you did as well. We're asking all of you who appreciate the work it takes to create these shows, shows that inform, entertain, educate, and enlighten, to become subscribers to our show for only $2.99 a month. The link is in the show notes here, and at www.1001storiespodcast.com, our home webpage. It's the best way to say thank you for the three years we've been doing the 1001 podcast and to guarantee another three years of storytelling and historical sketches. I have so many ideas piled up and buried as notes all around this office where I do these shows that you wouldn't believe it. With regard to actually subscribing to things I like, I'll admit it's like pulling teeth, so I can understand why only a small percentage of people do it for little independent projects like mine. I'm not Netflix. I did try one of those audiobook services once, but it took 14 hours to get through one book, and I was finding that I just didn't have the time for that. Some listeners have told me they enjoy our shows 
because they're generally around an hour or less, and that's fine with them. And they write great reviews at iTunes telling me they love our content, the choice of subject matter, the variety of stories, the fact that our content is clean, the human drama, the unknown histories, the people we cover, and the way we tell the stories. Not everyone can do this and hold on to and grow audiences for years. In three years now, we have received, counting all of our 1,001 shows, over 15 million listens in over 170 countries, most of the U.S., but lots in the U.K., Australia, and Canada as well, plus everywhere else, from Estonia to Morocco. So, yes, we are different. We work hard to get and keep listeners. I love what I do, and it shows. I'm asking you to make an exception for us and send your thanks and appreciation our way in the form of a $2.99 a month subscription. Yep, you get a bunch of neat stuff, but most of all, you're telling me thanks for what we do and providing you with these stories. Please see the show notes, get the app with all three shows, and subscribe. To all of you who are already with us, you have my boundless gratitude, and I'll do my best never to disappoint. Thank you. 